Thanks, Sonia. Let's pause and pray. God, thank you for this uh, really encouraging and um, rich word, uh, just how human it is and um, just a lot of the different touch points in it. So there's obviously, God, too much for us to unpack in, in one little conversation, but um, we do pray for your spirit to uh, open our hearts now to, to what you might have for us personally, also our community and shaping us to be faithful and um, also to be a people who, as we head out of here today, um, we have something to share, God. We, we want to be able to share our lives and share you through our lives with those in our lives. So to that end, God, would you um, equip us for that? Um, we thank you for the opportunity for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I want to start this morning. Where did I put it? How many of you guys have seen this card? We'll put it up on the screen, Jerfie. I've got this little postcard, actual. Boop. How many of you guys have seen it's called, it says How to Build Community? Anybody seen this? It's like, I don't know, the tourist stores and stuff. A couple. So we've had this uh, on our refrigerator, Elizabeth and I have, for quite a while. Um, and here's some of the things it says on the card. Um, so how to build community. Turn off your TV. Leave your house. Know your neighbors. Greet people. Look up when you're walking. We actually... <laughs> Almost hit a guy looking down while he was walking on my bike yesterday on the Burke Gilman Trail. So especially on your Burke Gilman Trail, look up when you're walking, take off your headphones. Don't, like, do this because that's dangerous. Um, but it doesn't say that. It, uh, sit on your stoop, plant flowers, use your library, play together, buy from local merchants, um, help a lost dog. It goes on and on. Uh, then it says, uh, you know, buy from local merchants. Um, ask for help when you need it. Take back the night. Turn up your music. Turn down your music. <laughs> Listen before you react in anger. Mediate a conflict. Seek to understand and learn from new uncomfortable angles. Know that no one is silent, though many are not heard. Work to change this. Um, so we've had this in our fridge. Uh, it's, very, it's a very powerful little reminder of the ways in which um, you can approach community. And the reason Elizabeth and I have kept it in our fridge is it's been, community has been a, a pretty central part of our lives, as well as my ministry uh, since I really became a Christian back in like 1996, 97. Um, in that year, uh, I was in Tacoma, I'd gone to college in Tacoma, had an opportunity to live in a, in a community in the hilltop of Tacoma called the 12th Street House, which is no longer there, but it was um, run by Young Life in Tacoma. And it was kind of like an intentional community, like it's like uh, the real world uh, for Christians. If you remember that movie, that show from MTV, like uh, some of you don't, but um, living together and kind of learning about life together without parents and with checkbooks and, um, and also kind of being a source of hope for the community. The Hilltop in Tacoma, at least at that time, was a pretty hard and broken neighborhood. We, we had a crack house across the street and a lot of um, kids who had parents who weren't in their lives as much and so would wander through our home and we'd do homework with them. And so I got to live in this house for a while and learn about what it would look like for a, a community of Christ followers who committed to share their lives, time, resources with each other, and the city around them learned what that could look like. Um, after that, I moved up to Seattle, got to be part of a similar thing that University Presbyterian Church offered called the Intentional Community Program. Uh, I actually directed the program for a few years, and now it's dead, but that's, you know, my legacy. So that's actually how I met my wife, Elizabeth. Um, I didn't date her when she was in the program afterwards, so I didn't break any rules. Um, and we're also close in age, so there's, I'm giving a lot of caveats. I'm an okay person. Um, all this to say... My life has been shaped radically by communities and the communities I've lived in and the experiences in them. 
Which is why when I started at Bethany uh, six years ago, some of you might not remember this, but my first sermon at Bethany Green Lake was on Acts chapter 2. And uh, a, there's a few people in this community that remember that because they came up to me after the sermon and said, we're with you. Wherever you go, we go. Um, and then after we launched Bethany Northeast, a year later, we launched with these things called neighborhood groups. How many of you are involved in a neighborhood group or think you are? So there's not a ton of you, but there's enough. And that's been important to me, and it continues to be important to me. If you're involved in one or you think you are, you were, and you're like, what happened to that? I'd like to talk because it's really important to me that people inside our community, our church, get to experience community outside of our church on Sunday. Also, the people in your neighborhoods where you live get to experience that. And so you get to offer kind of a, a vision for that to them because you can't assume just because you live in the neighborhood you do that everybody in your neighborhood has relationships with people. They probably are discouraged around friendship deeply, and you have an opportunity to commit your life to them in a way that's very powerful. So that's why those groups are there. Um, so having said that, at one point in my life, uh, I came across this book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <clears throat> this is actually pretty early on. And uh, it's called Life Together. Some of you have read this. And he writes in this book this thing that just hit me like an arrow to the heart because community has been so important to me. Uh, he says this, just as the uh, word blah, blah, where did it, where did I put it? You know, sometimes I put these quotes in my notes so I don't have to find them. Now I don't know where I put it. Oh, no. Well, I'm not going to read the quote because I don't know exactly where it is. <laughs> but basically he says, it's a great book. He says that Christian community is not the point. Community is not the point. I mean, the book is about community, but community is not the point. Uh, when we make it the point, we've made out of community an idol of community. He says Christ is the, is the, is the point. Always and, and ever. It's, Christ is always the thing we're striving for. And uh, we experience community as a fruit of our pursuit of Christ. That's kind of a summary of his quote. Um, and so I, it hit me because as much as community has shaped my life, I love the postcard. I've had these uh, experiences in my life. Our church is committed to it. It's not what we're after. We're not after community and better communities and a better church, Bethany Community Church. We're not after that. Christ is who we're after. And community must be, or if we're after Christ, will be the, the fruit of our pursuit of Christ. It just will. It'll just be a fruit. And so the key, the key is, though, within our pursuit of Christ, the Bonhoeffer quote kind of talks about this, God is profoundly generous toward us. He is good to us, to us in community as we pursue him. He gives us things. And in particular, as I was reading this Romans 12 passage, I noticed through that lens of community, pursuit of Christ first, a few gifts that God gives in the context of community. Um, so I want to look at three of them uh, that, that stand out to me from this passage. Um, gifts that were given as we pursue Christ in community, okay? Uh, The first one I want to look at is a solid ground to stand on, and I'll unpack this as we go. The second one is this definite strength to move forward in life in. And the third one is a pregnant hope with which to engage the world. And um, so a ground, a a strength, and a hope. And the way we're going to approach the passage is a little weird. We're going to look at the middle of it, and then the beginning of it, and then the end of it. Okay, so if you're Romans 12, starting in verse 4 or 3, the middle, we're going to look at 9 to 13 first, and then the beginning... And then the end. Just follow. It'll be good. So the first gift, a solid ground to stand on. This is verses 9 to 13. 
that passage, that part that starts, love must be sincere, hate what's evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another in love, okay? These are actually the central or crucial, the most crucial verses to this whole passage um, because four times in the passage, Paul talks about the necessity of love as the basis or the foundation for community, for Christian community. Uh, and he doesn't talk about it in an abstract sort of wishy-washy way, actually. He, he puts some real teeth around it, four different words for love he uses in the Greek. You don't notice it when you read it in English. Four times, though, different, four very different words. I'm going to unpack them. Verse 9 first where he says, love must be sincere. The Greek word for love there is this very familiar word we all know, agape, okay? And you've all heard this, but agape is like God's unconditional, sacrificial, serving love. It's the love of Christ on the cross. Um, It's the love of the Father in the parable of the prodigal son. It's this love that's unique to God uh, and those who are in relationship to God, a love whose origin is really in God. It's not human love, okay? That's agape. And yet, as powerful as that vision and version of love is, it's not the only love that Paul talks about. It's just the first. Um, so he goes on. He doesn't use that word more than once. Oftentimes in a love passage like 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see agape, agape, agape. This is just the one. Then he goes on to verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in love. And he uses two additional words for love there that are different than agape. The first is, actually it's the second um, in, the, in the sentence, but we'll talk about it first, is the Greek word Philadelphia. And that's, that's the word in love. So be devoted to one another in love. It's Philadelphia. And of course, we, this is one of those Greek words you all know, which I think is ironic because I've been to Philadelphia quite a bit. And it's like, you know, you kind of wish that maybe they'd paid attention to their culture a little bit. But um, not the friendliest place in the world, but it's brotherly love. And uh, it's a East Coast friendly, right? Just tell you like it is. Um, and so <laughs> I hope I just didn't throw all the Philadelphians under the bus. But I love you too. In that sense, um, is a, it's, a, it's the love of friendship. And in that sense, it's something to our modern sensibilities that um, we, and we is very vague and sentimental. Um, like, we don't know exactly what Paul's talking about when he talks about brotherly love, nor do we really, I think, value it that much. Um, like, when it comes to faith, it's not really why we got into the Christian faith in the first place to have brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, maybe you did, but actually, C.S. Lewis in that classic book he wrote on the subject of love, The Four Loves, he describes all four of these loves, but he describes Philadelphia this way. He says it's the least instinctive, least organic, least gregarious, and least biologically necessary of all the loves. It has the least commerce with our nerves. There's nothing throaty about it, nothing that quickens your pulse and turns you red and pale. It's essentially between two individuals, um, often of the same gender. And, And so without eros... None of us would have been begotten. Without affection, none of us reared. But we can live and breed without friendship. The species, he says, is bi- biologically speaking, has no need for Philadelphia. And of course, he's being facetious, because in truth, when he goes on, he says it's actually really necessary. Uh, but he's highlighting our sort of ambivalence around friendship and love. And it's good, and I value friendship. Don't hear me wrong here. Uh, but you might be left asking, if you come to this, like, what does it have to do with my faith, really? I mean, it's good to have friends. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples friends, not, not servants, not students, not followers, friends. Very profound. Uh, but Paul says it's not the only kind of love out there, and not even the most important. So he goes on, a third word. In that same verse, verse 10, it's the first word in the sentence. He says, be devoted to one another in love. So the word be devoted is a, is a love word. It's philostorge. 
And the, the root for that, so you heard phileo, there's the friendship love. Storge, the root for that is this um, very throaty word with a very throaty meaning. It, it's this, it can be translated in other translations, bondedness or affection. It's the love of a family. It's the love of a mother for her infant. It's the love of the infant for her mother. Um, it's automatic. It's natural. It's deep. Like, it's deep. And um, I've been around a lot of your kids, and they don't have storge for me. <laughs> like, they're, oh, stranger danger. But um, they have it for you. They hear your voice. They know where you are. They feel you. They, they feel just relaxed. I mean, you saw Bruno and Theo up here. It's so relaxed with the parents. And uh, maybe, maybe Bruno a little less relaxed, but it's okay. It's, he's excitable. So, and so Paul's talking about this ground upon which the Christian community stands. It's the foundation. Its foundation is the love of God, agape, expressed in friendships, uh, Philadelphia, and experienced within the bond of a family, Philostorge. That's a beautiful picture for community, isn't it? I mean, that, when you talk about what the church exists for, unconditional friendships that view and treat each other as brothers and sisters, as a family of faith. I love that. Now, Christians all over the world, all over the world, um, we've gone around for generations calling each other brother and sister. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You know, we do this. I've, I didn't understand it at first because I didn't grow up in the church. And you don't, actually, we don't really know what we're, what we're saying when we do this. Um, but the Greeks and the Romans of Paul's day, uh, those Christians that, that called each other this, as well as those that watched the Christians doing this, they knew how radical it was. They knew. Lucian of Samosata, he was a Greek writer and author in the early days of the church. He watched Christianity grow in its first days. And he was a, a, the, one of the early adversaries to Christianity or an antagonist and a writer. He said something like this. Their founder, that's Jesus, persuades them, Christians, that they should be like brothers and sisters to one another and therefore despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. And he, he thought that was just terrible. <laughs> and that sounds very 21st century in some ways. It's a radical thing to say, both then and now. Because if you, if you experience the grace of God through Jesus, this statement that every other person on planet Earth who has had that experience of, of the grace of God through Jesus is your sister and is your brother, has, because you've been brought into this household of faith of God, it's radical because you... It means something you've rarely thought about. I'm just telling you this, and you need to think about it. Think about it for a sec. It's talk, to call somebody in, in faith your brother or sister, the family of God, is, is reflecting the intensity of your unconditional commitment to that person. I mean, think of your siblings, your actual siblings if you have them. Your siblings are not people you like at all. <laughs> like in many cases, and I have two kids and I watch this, there are people with completely different values, um, desires. You don't approve, later in life, you don't approve of their life. You don't approve how they're raising their kids. You don't approve of their politics. You, you fought as kids. You got on each other's nerves. You know how to push each other's buttons like nobody else. Is anybody with me? Okay, I've got a sister. And so uh, we say blood is thicker than water, though, right? It's thicker than water. Which means that in spite of all that stuff I just said, in spite of the fact you did not choose or probably wouldn't choose your siblings, <laughs> if you had a, a lineup, you'd choose somebody else, they're still your brothers and your sisters. You, they just are. And so you feel this deep bond. Remember Philostorge, a sense of connection, a commitment, and that's the essence of it. Um, and the implication of that within the Christian community is that it's this love that, that's like this deep subterranean stream that runs underneath the surface. We don't see it. We know it's there, and we know it's vital. Um, 
it's saying basically that though you don't agree with each other, and we have the, the, the left and the right, I mean, I'm not saying that politically, but you may not agree with each other on every issue, theologically, politically, whatever it is. You say, I stand with you because of Christ and Christ alone. You're my brother. You're my sister. There's nothing else. That's why Bethany says in one of our um, kind of core doctrines or core tenets is in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Because we believe we are a family of faith. And blood is thicker than water. And it's thicker than doctrine and dogma or whatever you want to call it. The blood of Christ, the bond of peace between us, is thicker than the various ways we have of interpreting the Bible or interpreting the world around us. It just is. And that's what we stand on. Which leads to the second implication. I mean, think of the intensity of intimacy in your family, your biological family. Your parents wiped your bottoms, all of you. Maybe some of you didn't, but uh, they wiped your nose. Your siblings, if you grew up in a large family, did it. Um, Or if you were an older sibling, you did it. You get to do it. It's a blessing. (laughs) And as a result, here's the thing. You know things about those people that other people don't. You know their so-called messes, like you, you wipe their snot and their poop. Like, the, the, you, that's dirty diapers and tissues. Like, they're emblematic of all the messes in our lives, all the gunk, all the grossness, all of our flaws and failures and insecurities. We can push each other's buttons as siblings. And so, friends, family of God, there is an incredible intimacy in this. In a, in a healthy family, there is profound intimacy, and intimacy is not a box of chocolates and a rose and a poetry and candles and all this stuff. That's not intimacy. That is, that is just a hallmark version of what we call intimacy. Intimacy is a community where there's confession and forgiveness and deep brokenness that doesn't lead to shame and fear, but healing and forgiveness. And intimacy is, is, is being able to be in the midst of a space and just be you and be loved. And, and that's the vision Paul's casting when he says Philostorgy is the love that, that grounds this community of faith I'm, I'm helping to create, the family of faith. So there's transparency there's intimacy. There's also profound generosity. Like, do you know how economically radical this is to call each other brothers and sisters and then pass plates like we do each Sunday and say, this is God's money. Let the church use it. Let God use it. Let my brothers and sisters use it. Uh, like, to, to look at your friends here, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom you barely know, and to, to, to give up something, your wallet, your purse, to give up a, a part of your life that is so, I, I think we, we hold on to you so tightly. We don't let anybody into our bank accounts, except our, maybe our financial planners. Um, yet, we're saying that we're going to let you in. Uh, see, Lucian, he said, uh, because these people consider themselves brothers and sisters, they've given up their privacy and their right to use their possessions as they want. So siblings, they hate this. Like, my children hate sharing their stuff. And they're 8 and 13. They hate the fact they live on the same floor in the same house. Man, they'd love a separate cottage in the back. And like sharing, like some families break down at the death of a loved one when they get to uh, talking about the inheritance. There's completely meltdown. You know, you've seen this. And so Lucian understood that this is radical because it means that brothers and sisters in Christ have a claim on your wallets and, and, and your resources and your, your living spaces. This is why we do neighborhood groups in homes and not in this space. And your time and your calendars. It's radically intense. It's culturally intense. And so think about this. Christians, we're called into a posture or lifestyle of radical generosity because you've experienced it. That's all grace is, radical generosity from God. He's been radically generous to you. You don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve it. You didn't do anything to get it, but God gives it 
without any conditions. And, and so we're saying no matter your culture, your ethnic heritage, your politics, your gender, your orientation, your economic status, no matter how different you are, because of the grace of God, you have a claim on me and I have a claim on you. And we have a reciprocal commitment to each other and where there's transparency and sacrifice and generosity. That's the basis of a Christian community like this. That's why we do infant dedications on Sundays. That's why we invite our kids to come back and celebrate communion with us. That's why we have this table over here. And it's, it's noisy and distracting and often can't hear me because it's a reminder that to all of us every Sunday that we are family. And we're here because we're family. And you need to be reminded of that. But there's another love. That was only three. It's going to go on all day. There's a fourth love, and I don't want to miss this because it's really important. So one more facet real quick. In verse 13, and you don't, you don't see it because of our, our, our kind of 21st century modern American culture on this, but it's something that Paul says, he says, practice hospitality. That's a love word, actually. Um, it's, this, it's this Greek word, phyloxenia. So there's phileo, brotherly love, and then xenos, which is the word you get foreigner or stranger from. We have xenophobia in our culture, which is fear of strangers, or fear of foreigners. A lot of that happening today. But phyloxenia is the opposite of that. It's strangerly love, not, not strangerly fear. And I don't think I need to tell anybody in the room how potent and powerful this word is for us today in January of 2019. Not the least of which is this summons by God to open our lives to people that God brings into our lives, not just those like us that have our politics and our same skin color and our same nationality and wear the same clothes. Like I wear Patagonia tip to toe and Andrew does too. And so we're buds, you know, like, but those unlike us, that's the point. Those that are most unlike us, God says, you're family with them. Um, think about this. When you, when you get into a community like this, Bethany Northeast, it's really intense. One service, lots of friends, there, where there's real belonging, real accountability, real intimacy, those communities are almost impossible to break into from the outside. This has been one of the critiques, and it's been hard for me to hear this over the years, five years of doing this with you, that Bethany is so much intensity but not much openness, Bethany Northeast. Hard for people who are new here to find their place in this place. And that's not something to be ashamed of if you've been here a long time or to apologize for. It's good to, to have intensity, but it's something we need to be aware of. It's a, it might be a blind spot for us. And so Paul's saying that, that that intensity cannot eclipse the openness of the Christian community, the family of God. That's phyloxenia, to, be, to open your living space, to open your life, to open your wallet, open your resources, open your calendar to people who are unlike you, to say who are different, who look different, who believe different, who you might be suspicious of a little bit, who just are different. And he would not naturally want to get to know. <laughs> and, and that's the reason why in the Greco-Roman world, it's true today, and as soon as I describe this, you're going to know what I'm talking about. Everything was based on the patronage system. So it meant that when you, you'd invite people into your home or your life or your church in this context so that you could do things, you'd give them things so you, they could owe you something. They'd give you money. You reserve seats for the rich and the powerful up front, and they'd owe you something. You know, you'd invite them for dinner, and then they could open doors for you in your career. Um, you'd, you'd buy them a meal. They could, you, they could curry, you'd curry favor with them. Happens today. And Paul says this is not how things 
must or should work in the church. It, it will be different. There will be radical welcome inside the Christian community. It will be unconditionally open. People will open their lives regardless of what, we will open our lives regardless of what people can do for us, where they can get us, how they can help us. We're just called to that. We're called to be so open, in many cases, to people very strange to us, to be open to the stranger, to, to, to extend strangerly love, hospitality, abundant hospitality. And to people different than us. This is the kind of community Paul invites us to be, um, or God invites us to be through Paul, where there's a bond of love, un- unbelievably intense bond, also radical openness. Um, and if we don't give up our need for privacy, I'll just say this to us, we have a need for that in Seattle. And our need for deep relationships, we, we all long for that. I think we come here longing for deeper friendship. And a need for our daily lives to connect to other people, uh, you know, our need for transparency. If we don't give up a little bit of that and pursue relationships with people who are just different, um, that's actually the word practice. When he says practice hospitality, it means to run after and pursue. That's what practice is. It's not, it's like very anemic in English, but he's like run, pursue people different than you. Like you're running a race. If we don't pursue that vision, we will experience community in a way that is not as transformative and textured as it could be. It'll just leave us wanting, and many of us are wanting more right now. So that's the vision. That's the basis of community. Might this be ours? So that's the first thing. I spent a lot longer on that than I planned, but I get going on this stuff. So uh, it's good. hope it stirs us up a little bit. So I'm going to move through these next two much faster. Let's see. Second gift. This definite strength to move forward, and this is, again, at the beginning Verses 4 to 6, um, Paul talks about all those spiritual gifts. You know, each member has different gifts. I kind of want to focus, I mean, you, you probably thought coming in, oh, this will be the gifts sermon, leadership, prophecy, encouragement, teaching. I want to focus on something a little different real quick. And, and the gift to help us move forward, the strength to move forward in, is the awareness, the awareness of our gifting, but that we all have different get, giftings according to the grace given to us. Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. And then he goes on and describes the gifts. So a quick caveat here. We tend to approach this gifts passage or the one in 1 Corinthians or Ephesians with a, with a question, what's my gift? You know, I take the Myers-Briggs or I take a gifts assessment or the Enneagram or whatever, and am I a teacher? Am I equipped to be a teacher? Am I a leader? Do I have a gift of care or encouragement? Who, who am I, God? And that has a couple problems. I'm just going to tell you right now. Number one, it's very self-centered very individualistic. We forget, Paul wrote this letter in Romans to a church that had been fractured by divisions. They were just tearing each other apart because they didn't agree. So he's trying to, he's doing the work of uniting them in Christ, bringing the healing back into this community so they could move forward despite theological disputes. Um, So we forget that the intent of his teaching was to bring this healing. And so it wasn't about what's my gift, individual. It's about what's the, how has God gifted the community? Do you see it? It's, uh, there have been, God has gifted this church. You are so gifted. There are so many gifts out there in this room this morning, and then out down the halls and in the, everywhere. So it's not about just you, ever. That's the first thing. And the, the other thing, flaw in that question is, it assumes there's just one gift in your life. And if you just find your gift, all will be well. See, we tend to focus on the aspect of the gift instead of the fact of the gift. It's you have been gifted. Did you notice in verse 6? 
We have different gifts, period. <laughs> he didn't say, well, some of you have gifts. Others, sorry. We have different gifts. He's assuming that you've been gifted. It assumes that you're gifted. Everyone in the room, I don't care how old you are, how long you've been walking with Christ, or if you're not, uh, you're gifted. And so, you know, I've taken so many of those uh, gifts assessments in my life. It's ridiculous. And, and here's what I've learned from them. I'm natu- naturally extroverted, but when I get around a group of extroverts, I go into my sh- turtle shell. I become an introvert. So I'm kind of a chameleon in that way. I've learned that I'm gifted at speaking to people, sometimes teaching, uh, but I can speak in front of a crowd. It doesn't make me nervous to do this, ever, never has. I have the gift of solving problems. I've moved dozens and dozens of times in my life, just have moved every few years. So I've, I've learned I'm really good at packing a moving truck. And that is daily applied to our dishwasher. I pack and repack the thing till it's just right, and then we start it every day. Ask my wife. Great gift to our family. So I load the dishes. <laughs> I'm very efficient. Uh, great gift to our family. Every night at dinner, that's what I do. So invite me over. I'll do your dishes. Um, in certain seasons of my life, I've been a gifted endurance athlete, not a sprinter. I can go long, long distances, swimming, biking, running. Well, actually not running. This guy, Steve, can go long distances running. I walk. So um, I've been a gifted listener, a gifted friend. There's a lot of gifts in my life. So here's the thing. There's not one singular gift. What's my gift? In fact, some of those gifts, if you notice, aren't even on that list Paul laid out. So if I ever just evaluated myself against Paul's list, and I discovered, for example, I'm not an encourager. I'm not a very encouraging person. I'm not a leader. I'm not a prophet. I'm not really a teacher. I'm going to leave my study of Paul's list there a little bummed. Like, and I'm going to ask the question, did I miss it? Did God skip me? You know, have you been with me? So here's the point. We're not machines. We're humans. We're people. There's not hard code written into your DNA, your body, there is some code there, but your gifts grow over time, and they change. You change. You're changing right now. Your mind is changing. Your body's changing. Everything about you is changing. It's live. And, and so you can't look at Paul's list here, any list in the Bible, Ephesians, Corinthians, anywhere else, and just type yourself, and, 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 or someone else, don't do that, <laughs> and have this clear and solid framework for how they or you are going to operate in this world. In your youth, you, it might be that God gave you the gift of prophecy, and you have this audacious gift of speaking the truth. A lot of our kids do. In your age, it's gonna be, it might be that you have the gift of leadership, and you are being called to mentor somebody younger than you in this season. Um, it could be a child. It could be one of your employees. It could be one of our squirrely middle schoolers or high schoolers. <laughs> like, in a season of abundance, it could be a gift of generosity. In a season of hardship, a gift of mercy. Your gifts change. You've been given gifts. You are, God has given us so many things. So here's my point. Instead of focusing on my gifting and what gifting it is, what if we recognized the amazing generosity of God and uh, toward our community and, and, and the reality that you and everyone here has a gift to give and just use it in whatever season you're in. Everyone has a gift, not some, all. Uh, all are gifted according to God's grace, which is by nature extravagant and abundant, That's what grace is, so God's gifting is. God has gifted you extravagantly in the same way. So there's a lot of things you can learn from this. And the the primary way I've learned to use my gifting is just using it. (laughs) So I learned one day, 
that I can speak and I can learn, I, I can study the Bible, it comes naturally, and, and I was looking for ways to do this. And I was back east, and our senior pastor there said, hey, there's a retirement community down the road that needs some kind of speakers, you know, do Bible studies and sermons and stuff. And then a friend of mine was a chaplain at a jail down the other, other, other way in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And he's like, hey, I need some guys to lead Bible studies. And I'd done a little bit of that too. So you know where I learned how to preach? In jails and retirement communities. Not a pulpit, not a stage. Never did. That's not where I learned. And it wasn't, that's not to denigrate retirement communities and jails. Like, but I learned sitting in multi-purpose rooms on plastic chairs and in, in room, smaller rooms like this with people in wheelchairs that are mostly asleep, right? just bored, that, they, people that were not choosing to be where they were. Um, I learned how to read God's Bible and to bring truth out of that and encourage people very different than me. Um, and I only learned it because I used it. I had a, a hunch maybe I could do this. And that's why I'm here. Um, so my exhortation to you is just use your gift in whatever season you're in. Just use it. Try it out. That's why your presence and contribution to this community on Sundays is so important. Um, thank you for those that are serving actively. Thank you so much. It matters that you sing. It matters to Andrew, but it matters to us because if you don't, there might be a gift that somebody else who's in a season of desolation misses. It might be your season of like, I can sing this and believe it, and the person next to you can hear that word. If you serve on Sunday in a Sunday school class, that matters, and obviously a lot of those folks aren't hearing that right now. Um, But you are. (laughs) And we had 140 kids last Sunday. Maybe this is your time to give it a shot. You may not see yourself as a teacher or, or a discipler of young people. Maybe you could just explore that. Give it one shot. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. <laughs> like, you've been gifted. Use your gift wherever God's placed you. And not just on Sundays. Hear this. I want to loop back real quick to the first point. In your neighborhood, in your workplace, on your commute to the wherever you go because nobody's driving on the bus. Like, nobody's driving anymore. So on your bus, Whatever gift God's given you to be there and be a pre- it could be the bus driver. Just being really friendly. Whatever your gift is in this season, may God give you the courage to use it. Here's the last thing I want to say real quick, real quick. The third thing. God gives us a, a confident hope with which to engage the world. I'm not going to read verses 14 to 21. There's, it, it, essentially, we didn't read it. Paul's giving us a little bit of a roadmap to how to deal with, how to engage in healthy conflict, if you're ever curious about that, in particular with people we strongly disagree with, um, people that the Bible describes as enemies. But in verse 18, he says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. <laughs> I love how he introduces that because it's so human. Like, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It offers hope. I think, for engaging the word. You've heard me talk about um, this idea of shalom if you've been here before. Um, it's this Hebrew word for peace. And Paul didn't use that word in Romans 12. He used a variant in Greek. But if this was the Hebrew Bible, uh, he would have used shalom. That's, it's a very strong Hebrew word. In fact, it's the word that he would have used in his vernacular to greet his friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Shalom. Like if you've ever heard a, if you've been to a Muslim community, they say, assalamu alaikum. And then the person says, assalamu uh, I, I will say it backwards, but it's reversed. And that's the Arabic greeting for peace be unto you and also unto you. I mean, actually, Christian communities do this as well in the passing of the peace. It's an ancient thing. And it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, 
idea not to just wish peace, but to actually say, to desire it, there's a vision for it that we've been given, and to begin working for it. Let's be people of peace. That's what Paul means when he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Like, have a vision for it. Don't just talk about an absence of conflict as, as, a, as a vision for peace, but gather together in community and begin working for peace. Create a culture of peace, a culture of shalom. Now, what is shalom, real quick? What would that look like for us to just not pass the peace, but work and create a culture for it? Um, Tim Keller, back in New York City, in one of his books called Generous Justice, uh, he uses this metaphor for shalom of a damaged tapestry or garment. So some of you have socks with holes in them. You know what darning a sock looks like, right? Wool socks. You kind of weave, reweave the threads. My wife did this once for me because I like to wear my socks around instead of slippers. And I wear holes in the socks all the time. So she darned my sock back together. So it was torn. It was beautiful. Now it's useful again. Um, you know, we didn't throw it away. You've seen this with tapestries that are worn. Um, you repair it. You find the threads that are, are dangling and you start weaving them together. You bring in new fabric or new yarn. You with me? That's the vision, Keller says, for shalom. Reweaving what's torn, working together to make something that was once beautiful, useful. Okay? So that's the picture. And that's the final gift. The healing of a broken world, world through the practice of peace. We have an opportunity to heal a broken world through our practice of peace together. So tomorrow is going to be Dr. King's, Martin Luther King's um, birthday. Actually, his birthday is on the 15th. Um, I learned this week that the latest date it can be celebrated is the 21st of January. So we're just getting it in. Uh, we celebrate that, that every year as a national holiday. It's intended as a day of service, also a day of recognizing what he stood for, honoring his legacy. Actually, a real quick side note. If you look in your bulletin, top left corner, some folks from our community are going to actually go down to Garfield High School tomorrow. Um, join the rally, and be a part of the, the King March tomorrow. Um, it's designed for families with young kids. So we're only going like a mile point three, just up to Capitol Hill and then getting, I think, donuts or something, which is always good. So um, Karen Foxley, who's not here, she's teaching. She's going to help to lead that. So her, her email's in the bulletin. If you're interested in being a part of that, it's just the wrong email. That's on me. So it should be Karen R. Foxley, if you can remember that. If that doesn't come easily... Just email me, and you can all find me easily, and I'll connect you with her. But that's tomorrow, and there's a whole thing around it. And we'd love to be part. I mean, hopefully be a part of that and some others in our community as well because we, we want to recognize his legacy. But not just his legacy. We want to be a community that creates a culture for peace, shalom, um, healing, the broken world we're in, by re- helping to be a part of reweaving places that are torn by racial injustice and um, violence and poverty and all the things that we see in our city. And so King, he was a pastor, as you know. He spoke frequently on this idea of peace. He was concerned for it. He talked about community as well. I've been talking about it. And he called this the beloved community. And in in one place that I found this week, in a sermon he gave called The Birth of a New Nation, Um, he gave this sermon on April 7th, 1957, in Montgomery. He'd just come back from Ghana, seen how they'd achieved freedom, and he had a vision. He caught a vision from that for what it would look like for us in America. So he gave this sermon titled The Birth of a New Nation. He talks about that trip. He talks about their struggle for freedom. He talks about what they're fighting. So you think they're fighting uh, 
bad men and men in power and stuff. He actually names something that I, I was just hit by this week, which is what they're fighting, what peace work is all about. And it echoes in a way, I think, everything I've been talking about this morning. So I actually want to finish this morning by just listening. It's a minute, 30 seconds to this little clip from that sermon. And then I'll come back up and we'll respond in prayer. Okay. So let's listen to this. I'll join you and then we'll, we'll worship a little bit, a little bit. Another like hour or so, but uh, man, our aim is not to defeat people, our enemies, our so-called enemies. Our, our aim is to defeat love. I mean, sorry, to defeat evil. <laughs> we, we don't want to record this sermon. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, we're not fighting. I just, I, that to me was such a profound aha. We're not fighting our enemies. We think we're fighting the person on the other side of the aisle. We think we're fighting that other theology. We're afraid deeply of the other. Paul says, love the other. Extend hospitality. Practice it. Love the person so different from you. Uh, Fight with love. So you might do that tomorrow by marching and just walking alongside people. You're not sure. I mean, I did this a couple years ago. It was pretty much an anti our current president, March, and it was really unsettling for me because I really wanted it to be about Dr. King, you know? But you know what? I did it with my good friend here, and we fight with love. You might do it in your community where you live. Uh, you might do it out of conviction around an issue that you, you're really passionate about. You fight with love. That's the legacy we, we get to live in because of Christ, um, not Dr. King, though we, we honor him tomorrow as well. And so this morning, I, I just want to invite our worship team back up um, and uh, just kind of as we're praying, uh, I, kinda, I just want to invite you to think of the places in your life, I'll be praying around this, but where we feel like there are just enemies around us. And let's pray for our enemies. Jesus invites us to do this. Pray for your enemies. Love, bless those who persecute you. Um, let's fight with love. And be a people of peace, a a culture of peace for the city of Seattle. Let's take a moment to pray.